You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. All right, find Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bibles, and in just a moment I'm going to ask you to stand as I read God's Word. Question, how is a sinner saved? Question, why does someone repent and believe? Answer, by God's grace alone. Now this summer we're looking at five pillars of the Christian faith, the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, sola is Latin for alone or only. We have looked at sola scriptura, scripture alone today, sola gratia, grace alone. Uh, these are bedrock biblical truths that we must know and live. And people like Luther and Zwingli and Knox and Calvin and others fought a growing tide of teaching and authority and practice of a church that drifted further and further and further away from the Bible. And the Reformation reoriented Christianity back to the authority of scriptures where it started. Protestant comes from protest. Uh, we are part of the protest. We stand for the truth of God's word alone. And today, sola gratia, grace alone. How, how grace, and this is the main point today, how grace um, is unmerited, how salvation is by God's unmerited grace alone. How God initiates, changes our hearts, determines our destiny, and saves us. So if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, and not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that the gospel would be bright and central this morning. I pray, Lord, that all who hear would be convicted to repentance, motivated to authentic worship and sacrificially serving your purposes. I pray, Lord, that you would ordain dead hearts to be brought to life in Christ. I pray that Jesus would be lifted high. And we pray in his name. Amen. Please have a seat. 
Let me give you a little bit of background of where we have been the past two weeks. We looked at Sola Scriptura, how God has revealed himself in his supreme and sufficient word, how it is inspired, inerrant, infallible. A simple way to put it is, it's from God, it's all true, without error. We looked at the supremacy and the sufficiency of Bible that solves problems like not enough scripture in your life, twisted scriptures, or scripture plus. Scripture plus your favorite author, scripture plus your favorite idea or whatever. Because scripture is supreme, we need to treasure it, we need to obey it. And because scripture is sufficient, we need to trust it. It is the faith once for all delivered. In it we have everything we need for life and godliness. Now we're moving on to the next three solas. We'll look at one today, obviously, grace alone. But the next three are really interconnected, interrelated They're about the nature of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so today's passage, which is really well known, tells us that both grace and faith that saves are not of our own deserving, they are not of our own doing, they are God's gifts. Very clearly we see that here. And so we dive into grace alone. You look up the word grace alone. As it occurs in the Bible, and you see that it occurs over 150 times, grace as a concept, even when it's not mentioned, is is permeating throughout the Bible from beginning to end. Grace has a twofold significance. Uh, One, it's the unmerited favor of God. But secondly, it is the active outworking of God's unmerited favor. It isn't just the unmerited favor of God, but it's God actively outworking that unmerited favor in your life. And so we're looking today at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. I know this is kind of simple, but let me just say it. Ephesians 2 is built upon Ephesians 1, and it's really an extension or an elaboration of what's already been said in the chapter previous. And in these verses... Uh, ten verses of this chapter, you see the theme of, of salvation, you see the theme of redemption, and it's developed in terms of God raising dead people to life, and, and it's also known, these, t- these ten verses are also known as Romans in ten verses, and we're going to start preaching through Romans on, on September 3rd, uh, but I'll tell you, seriously, Paul had already uh, laid all of this out in great detail in the book of Romans and, and condenses These 10 verses, really the message of the book of Romans. And what we see in these 10 verses is the plan of God and the power of God. You see the past, present, and future. It breaks down very nicely here. First three verses is the past for a believer. What was? Your life in sin. uh, The deadness in sin. And then you see the present, verses 4 through 6. What is in the life of a believer? Salvation. And then you see what is future in the life of a believer from, from, the, uh, from the moment of conversion onward, what will be, verses 7 through 10, sanctification and glorification. So there you have it, the past, present, and future, sin, salvation, sanctification, glorification. So look with me at verse 1. We'll look first at the past, the past of a Christian. We were dead. First three verses. First verse starts this way. Very clearly, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not mincing words at all, this is just the way it is. You were dead in trespasses and sins, and it's in the past tense. Now, believers are going to say, well, I still sin. Am I in big trouble? 
You're still sin, but you're no longer identified like this. Uh, you're a, you were a dead sinner, now you're a live sinner. I don't know which one is worse, which one is more dangerous. But a dead sinner needs resurrection and, and needs to be raised from deadness to life. You were dead, and you weren't just dead, you were defiant, and then you were doomed. See, grace is God looking with favor upon those who are dead in sin, defiant against God, and doomed under his curse, his just curse. So this is either, as you're sitting here today or you're listening to this, uh, this is either your past or your present. If you are a believer, this is your past. Ephesians 4.18 says that we were alienated from the life of God. It's a restatement of being dead in sin, spiritual deadness, inability to respond. You think of physical death. I, I just officiated a funeral this week, and there was a casket with a dead body in it. Shocks us, right? But there was no response from the corpse, no capacity to respond. I remember when I was in the 10th grade, I went to my grandfather's funeral, and I was very close to my grandfather, and I remember it was an open casket funeral. I remember looking at his dead body in the casket, just hoping, wishing that he could get up out of it and talk to me. Wasn't going to happen. Spiritual deadness. And so spiritual deadness is, is like a case of zombiness. We're just a bunch of zombies. We're the walking dead. You're, you're doing your deal. You're living your life. And if you're not in Christ, you are the walking dead. Because of sin. Greek word is hamartia. It's the idea of a hunter missing the target. Let's just say you've got your compound bow out and you're wanting to, uh, you know, kill a deer. Get some meat for the winter. Do that a lot in Southern California, right? Don't we? Yeah. And you, and you see a deer out there, and, and you, you pull the bow back, and you let it fly, and you miss by a mile. You miss the mark. Sin is a hunter missing the target, uh, and, and trespasses. The Greek word is paroptima, and it means to slip, it means to stumble, it means to go in the wrong direction, and it's, it's a word of location. You are either in Christ or you're in sin. It's, it's your identity. Which one is it? You've got to grasp this. This, this. this is pointing out to us very clearly the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. You've got transgressions, false steps. You've got sin, fall, failing to give God glory. It's a sober reminder of the total sinfulness and lostness of humans outside of Christ. The word in, it indicates the realm of which the unregenerate sinner exists. And, and you're not dead because of sinful acts that you've committed, but because of your sinful nature, because of your propensity to sin. And dead is dead, folks. Is it not? Dead is dead. This week, I was working in my yard, and I found a really, really dead rat. And it was petrified. It had been under this dog run in our backyard that I was removing, and it was flattened out, dead, like you could hold it up and it would be like you could wave it as a fan if you wanted to. And, and, but it wasn't, it wasn't a fresh and squishy dead rat. <laughs> but whether it's fresh and squishy or petrified, it's still a dead rat. And, and, and when you're dead spiritually, you can only be acted upon. You, you can't be the doer of anything. 
failed to hit God's target, Romans 3.23 tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're not able to glorify God. So you're not, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And it really is not so much what you do, but what you fail to do. Now, we're, we're all hung up on what we do, right? Oh, no, I committed a really bad sin. Or, oh, look at those people over there. They commit way worse sins than I do. And we rank them. The idea is that it's not so much what you do, but what you fail to do. That's how Jesus said it, John 16, 8. The Holy Spirit will convict of sin because they do not believe in me. Uh, you could be a really good civic humanitarian, you know, giving money all over the place. You, you could be a, a great uh, person to your family. You could be a straight-A student. You could be, you know, the worker that's never missed a day of work in 45 years. But it won't bring your dead soul to life. You're drowning in a sea of inability to reach God's standard. You have some moral goodness, but you are a, you're a death walker wandering the earth. You're drinking lattes, you're paying bills, and you're not glorifying God. Verse 2 tells us you walked this. This is what you did. You, this is your, walked, by the way, is your total past life history in summary. It's the whole summary all at one point. And you walked according to the course of this world, the, the world order, uh, humanity's values and standards apart from Christ. And you did so according to the power of the prince of the air, excuse me, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God, little g, God of this world. You lived according to the spirit of the age. Uh, Satan, who's behind these influences and trends, and you're going with it. And Satan is promoting concepts and instigating disobedient ideals in opposition to God. And in a world of sin, as a death walker, you cannot respond to God. Your son of disobedience, that's a Hebrew expression indicating the chief characteristic of your life is disobedience. Verse 3 says you lived in this, you conducted your life like this, and it refers to your public actions. Everyone could see it, it was on display. Verse 2, walk, it's your personal actions. Verse 3, lived, it's your public actions. All your life was showing on display that you were dead in sin. And as you were doing this, death walker, indulging desires by nature, a child of wrath, even like the rest. Everyone's in the same boat here. Jeremiah 17, 9, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Romans 3, 10 and 11, there's none righteous, no, not one, none that understands, none that seeks after God. You're not the master of your own destiny. You're not the captain of your soul. You are without hope apart from the grace of God, and you play no role in your salvation. Romans 8 tells us the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we are like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. Like leaves just blowing in the wind. Destruction. We deserve wrath. We're under the wrath of God. We were by nature children of wrath. Wrath is God's just punishment against sin. That's what we deserve. We deserve to stay in a dead state. 
on the way to hell, hell-bent sinners, running the hell-bent race, running from God with all the gusto we can muster, because without the grace of God, given the choice between heaven and hell, you would run straight into hell. You would see heaven as totally undesirable. You would see it as a miserable place because God is there and you hate God. You're spiritually dead. This is the Christian before Christ. John Piper said, before Christ, sin is not an alien power. Sin is our preference for anything over God. Sin is our disapproval of God. Sin is our exchange of his glory for substitutes. Sin is our suppression of the truth of God. Sin is our heart's hostility to God. It is who we are at the bottom of our hearts until Christ. We're sinful and we deserve nothing but justice and wrath at the hands of God. And, and this, if you look in the Old Testament, the Psalms, you know, I turn to the Psalms for comfort, you probably do too, but if you look at the Psalms, and you look at what the psalmists were saying, at the heart of, of Old Testament prayer, which finds just a beautiful home in the Psalms, you see a cry of human desperation. That's what you see. The psalmist recognized that Hope is only found in God's gracious initiative, and so they despaired of themselves and saw no hope in the fall, in the sin, and no hope in the creation. The humans are in rebellion against God. As Romans says, the creation groans under the weight of human sin. And so the psalmist were saying salvation must come from God. It's rooted in his character and actions. In fact, you go to the darkest of psalms, the ones that you, you, you read and you're like, I didn't get any comfort out of that one. Like Psalm 88, where there's no hope expressed at all. There is actually hope embedded in the psalm. Because the psalmist, even when he's expressing no hope at all, uses God's covenant name. And so despair is set against the backdrop of God's covenant of grace. He never forgets his covenant. The psalmist and we know life is not as it should be. The, to the, it ends in death, which is the penalty for sin. That's why we keep going to funerals. And death is this unnatural intrusion into the realm of human existence. Any hope must be found in God himself breaking in from the outside and acting in grace. And, and we need to be very thankful that God is gracious. Our problem is not a lack of self-esteem where we just need more encouragement. We are rebels against God at the very core of our being, and we need his grace. And you will not grasp how amazing grace is until you realize how agonizingly sinful you are. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Because salvation is by God's unmerited grace alone. That's the first thing we see here. We were dead. It's the past for a Christian. The second thing we see, though, is the present. Where God makes us alive in salvation, verses 4 through 6. And I want you to note, verse 1 <clears throat> begins like this, and you... And you. Verse 4 begins, but God. But God. 
But God, being rich in mercy, rich in compassion, rich in pity. Pity is, is where you feel for the person who's in misery. And you want to go out of your way to help them in their misery. And here's God who saw our misery and acted on our behalf of his own good pleasure. Grace is God's response to human sin. When you realize how bad sin is, you see your need for God's grace. And grace is action on God's part because sin requires a payment, requires a sacrifice. So you cannot talk about grace without recognizing your deadness in sin and need for the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place on the cross. It says that God, because of his great love, did you notice that in verse 4? God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Here is the love of God, the agape love of God on display because grace is the saving favor of God based on his love for us where God determines out of love, he determines to look upon us with favor and deliver us from sin. He has purposed this, and the Bible tells us he purposed this from the foundation of the world. Romans 3.11 tells us no one seeks for God. God seeks sinners. Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost, Luke 19.10. He doesn't wait for the lost to seek him. God acts first. John 12.32, Jesus said, when I am lifted up, from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's drawing wretched sinners to himself. And it's interesting, that drawing. You know, I was fishing recently, and I was fishing in, I love fishing in streams, and I was fishing in streams, and I was trying to entice some fish to come along and to grab my hook, which was, had some delicious, delicious power bait on it. You know, I struck out. I, I fished. I didn't, ca I didn't catch but this is not like trying to entice a fish with a juicy worm or power bait. Literally, draw means to drag, bring, take. This is what God does. Now, it's hard for people to hear, I know. Uh, we want to go back to the law. We want to try to earn salvation through being good. Uh, but grace frees you from that lie. Verse 5 says that when we were dead in our trespasses... God made us alive together with Christ. There's a resurrection that happened. We were raised we were, and then kept alive and preserved. The idea is that God didn't just leave you laying on the side of the road and said, I, I made you alive, now you take it from here. But he's taken us uh, all the way here. He's made us alive together. He's going to preserve our lives. And it's based on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Prototype for all who will rise from the dead. Titus 2.11 talks about the grace of God that's appeared. That's the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation is the embodiment of God's grace. It is its supreme revelation. Jesus Christ is grace personified. You've got to grasp that. that. The supreme manifestation of God's grace is Jesus Christ. You see this. In the word of God, that all, you look in the Old Testament, all the concepts of God's grace in the Old Testament find the fulfillment in Christ, in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God breaks into human history in human form, in the person of Christ, and brings to a startling conclusion his promises and purposes for his people. God did this. 
You look in the New Testament, you see that over and over again, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. It's not a boring plan. In fact, a lot of people think that genealogies in the Bible are boring. I always think, well, God wanted those names to be there. Let's read them. Uh, but Matthew 1, the genealogy there, startling. You know what it does? It shows Jesus in the line of Abraham and David. Showing the significance in God's previous covenantal dealings with the Jews and how Jesus plays into that. You look at Luke 3 and the genealogy there. You go all the way back to Adam on that one. It takes us all the way back to the first man, Adam. And right after the genealogy, Jesus is tempted like Adam. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, successfully resists temptation where Adam caved. And Luke is, is connecting Jesus to Adam. Uh, so did Paul in Romans 5. So did Paul in, Romans, in 1 Corinthians 15. You've got Adam and Christ uh, presented as two archetypical counterparts, really. The first Adam and the second Adam. And, and Jesus is God's action in response to Adam's failure in sin. The perfect response. The perfect action. God, God's grace, by the way, is not just the saving favor of God toward you. It is the saving action of God toward you. He acted on your behalf. He rescued. What does it say? He saves us. By grace you have been saved. You've been rescued. You get rescued. Let's say you're drowning in, in the ocean or drowning in a pool and someone comes up and rescues you or uh, let's say a firefighter rescues you from a, of a burning building. You're like, wow, I got rescued. I got saved. Here, this idea of saving, of, of being rescued is in the perfect tense. It is a completed action with an ongoing resolve on the part of God to keep you in that state. He's going to keep you saved forever. Now let's say you sin against the law when you're driving home today. You, you sin against the speed limit, let's just say, and, and you get pulled over and you get a ticket and you're like, I got to you know, pay for this. I got to make it right. Well, let's say you do a worse crime and, and you get thrown in jail. You've got to maybe you know, serve your time. But then there's a thing called parole, right? And there was a famous uh, parole hearing just this week, right? Well, and, and this is what happens. You, you sin and, and, and you've got a consequence. So now let's take it in the spiritual realm. You sin against God. And what do you need? You need, you need uh, to be set free. Uh, you need an unconditional free forgiveness. And you're dead in sin. You, you can't get that. It could be two feet away from underneath your nose and you can't reach out for it because you're dead. Well, what did God do? What did God do? Verse 6 says he raised us up together with Christ and then he seated us in the heavenlies with Christ. You, you experience a resurrection. You need this unconditional, complete, free forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7 says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption, forgiveness of our sins. The power to forgive sin is God's alone. And you're raised up together and seated with Christ. You're a new creature. Go over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, some beautiful verses on what Jesus did, what God was doing in Christ. Colossians 1.15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So you got the new creation there, and you've got Jesus as the agent of creation, the one in whom the whole created world finds its unity and coherence, and he's the firstborn from the dead, which, by the way, is not chronological there. It means he's preeminent, both in the outworking of the old creation founding of the old creation and the inbreaking, the outworking of the new creation. You boil this down, and what does it mean that God made you alive and raised you up together with Christ? In the simplest terms, it means that God is saying, I've got you forever. I'm, I'm going to take you on forever. I, I'm going to take care of you forever. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to do this for my own good pleasure, for my own glory, I'm going to show merciful love and grace to you through the ages forever. I've made you a son, a daughter, an heir. I've adopted you. I've given you full provision, protection uh, permanently. That's what God has done. This is the amazing grace of God. Uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Like passive corpses cannot secure salvation. Think of Mephibosheth and David in the Old Testament, an heir to Saul, the other line, worthy of death. Uh, he calls himself a dead dog, but he was brought to the king's table. He sat at the table. He was provided for. You think of the New Testament of Lazarus, this dead friend of Christ who could not raise himself from the dead because sin sinful human beings are unable to become new creations in their own strength. God, God uses now the language of death to refer to the impact of sin on the human nature. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. And Christ calls human beings to life, spiritually, unites them to himself, enables them to live as new creatures. It's God's working, God's doing, not ours. And the reason why this had to happen is because, because we needed a resurrection, not a pep talk or a life coach. And it must come from the outside. Lazarus could not raise himself from the dead, could not cooperate. God called him from the grave. Uh, Lazarus is the paradigm of God's grace in action, new birth, regeneration. Kind of what Nicodemus and Jesus were all talking about there in John chapter 3. And all humans are like Lazarus, incapable of moving toward God on their, on their own. Uh, if we are to receive spiritual life, it must be because God gives it to us freely as a gift. We're talking about regeneration here, being made alive with Christ. Now, in, in the Reformation, in the eye of the Reformation hurricane, you've got a humanist scholar, uh, Desiderius Erasmus, who published his discussion on free will in 1524, and he attacked Luther. He sided with the Pope, and he previously had been sympathetic to Luther. He published the first uh, printed New Testament in Greek in 1516 with notes that were highly critical of Rome. It's often been said that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. But Henry VIII and the Pope uh, pressured him to, to switch sides, basically, and seven years after the 
95 Thesis, he switched to the Pope's side, and the issue was free will. Free will. Understanding of sin's impact upon the human will. And Luther said to Erasmus, you've attacked the real thing. The essential issue. You've not worried about extraneous issues like the Pope, purgatory, indulgences, or any such trifles for which others have sought my blood. You have seen the hinge on which all turns and aimed for the vital spot. The question, does human will have the capacity to believe and obey the gospel unaided by the Spirit of God? Can, can humans do what, what Ephesians 2 says only God can do? Does a positive response to Christ require God's gracious enabling, or do sinners have this ability in and of themselves without any help? Luther called it the hinge on which it all turns. Basically, is it of God's grace or is it on human merit? Now, Erasmus was exalting human freedom. He believed salvation depended upon human will. And he saw the issue as very tiresome, very divisive. And he said, look, let's not argue about these practical things. They're really just, it's just a discussion. Let's, let's get to just real living of life and not tire ourselves out with theological nitpicking. Luther says, no, the issue is more than theological nitpicking. The gospel is at stake. You are presenting a different gospel than the one that was handed down in the word of God. Uh, the ultimate cause of our salvation is the grace of God alone. Now, there was also the 5th century Pelagian controversy, which we can't go into detail with here, but Pelagius was a, Mel a Welsh monk who took bitter issue with Augustine when Augustine wrote his Confessions. I've got a old, old copy of that book in my office, but the Confessions uh, were really the, the first great post-biblical first-person narrative of God's grace in someone's life. It was a written testimony of God's grace in Augustine's life. And he said, God, command what you will and give what you command. And he's basically saying that, that it's, it's all on God's shoulders. Pelagius hated the idea Ferocious debate ensued and it still rages today. Um, freedom to choose was the issue. And we get all worked up about that nowadays, our ideas of free will. Uh, but let me just say this. The ideas that we hold about free will today are vastly different than, you know, uh, what that meant to Adam and even what that meant to the reformers. Uh, yes, we choose freely. Yes, you do what you want at any given moment. Um, we're going to get into more of this when we get into faith alone. But suffice it to say that the Bible teaches that grace has made the fallen human will free again by instilling in it a love of righteousness, a love for God. That Jesus saves on the basis of the unmerited mercy of God shown to the undeserving, that grace alone is the sole cause of our salvation. It fits with 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 30, by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. Deuteronomy 7, 7 tells us, basically, God loves us because he loves us. It's his own choice to love us. Not because we were love worthy. Not because we were just so wonderful. No, we were dead in sin. And 1 John 4, 10 says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you got these biblical words, you know, predestination, election, regeneration, all in the Bible. I think a lot of people um, may have a problem with it because they think they're supposed to have a problem with it. 
Uh, it's thoroughly biblical. Our election is in Christ. God acts in history to save those who he chose in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, key New Testament passage is Romans 9. God is sovereign in choosing not based on merit, but on his own prerogative. And the objection that comes with that, that, well, God, you're not fair, is answered in, in Romans 9.20. Who are you to answer back to God? Who am I to answer back to God? It's all of grace simply because he decides to choose us, not based on merit, not based on foreseen faith, but solely on his will and gracious plan. And now these terms, you know, predestination, election, re regeneration, are Bible words, but they have, they've, they've uh, stemmed some contentious uh, debates uh, amongst people through the centuries. Um, but here's the deal. When, when it comes to foundational truths, you want to side with the historic Christian church. Uh, you must deal with Ephesians 2.1. You can't explain that one away. Dead means dead. And understanding grace is connected to your understanding of sin. Um, sin is moral death. Only an all-powerful action of God can bring you out of that death. God is the determiner of salvation. R.C. Sproul says this, most Western Christians believe they are sinful and grace is necessary for salvation, but do not believe evil has so corrupted the will as to make them morally unable to choose Jesus. It's up to us, they argue, to assent to grace and choose Christ for salvation. We can decide either way. This makes our decision the ultimate arbiter of our redemption. Scripture agrees we must want to follow Christ. It says to those to whom God gives saving grace will most certainly make the right decision. Wayne Grudem said, Scripture refers to regeneration as being born or born again. We did not choose to be made physically alive to be born. It happened to us. The Bible says we are entirely passive in regeneration. The idea there is that before you ever had an inclination to believe in Jesus, you were dead, lifeless, and unable to do one thing. And God had to make you alive before you could believe. Caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let me just say to that, we would never make this up. One more proof of how, how the Bible is so true and how God's plan uh, supersedes any human plan that could ever be hatched. Salvation is by God's unmerited grace alone. And then we're gonna look briefly at the last several verses. We're gonna look at this more uh, the next time we get into faith alone. But let's look at the future for a Christian, how God saves us for his purposes in sanctification and in glorification. So look at verse seven. It says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And the idea is that the power that raises believers from death to life is the same power for Christian living, and it goes through eternity. And uh, he's going to demonstrate this. He's going to display it, show it, prove it, the immeasurable riches of his grace, the surpassing, extraordinary, outstanding riches of his grace. He's going to show grace to you in the ages to come. It's not like, oh, I got saved, and I'm going to live on this earth for a while, and then go to heaven, and there'll be some other plan. This is going to be grace all the way through. It's beautiful. It's from God. Uh, and our, our, your comprehension of grace will only increase. It will never diminish. Robert Murray Mischang said, unfathomable oceans of grace are in, Christ, are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. 
Salvation by grace alone inspired John Newton to write Amazing Grace. Grace so amazing it could save a wretch like me and you. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. It is by grace. Verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved. It's the grace already mentioned. The grace that keeps us alive spiritually. It's the eternal grace. Grace has a purpose. Grace has a purpose. In fact, quickly look at Romans chapter 8. Verses 29 and 30. Grace has a purpose. Paul brings out this, these two ideas of predestination and glorification, glues them together. He says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's your glorification. You look at verse 10. It tells us that we are his workmanship. We're made in Christ. We're created in Christ for good works prepared beforehand. There's an implication upon your life. Implication to obey and to, to respond. And, and, and you've got to look at it this way. In sanctification. And then you think about regeneration, becoming spiritually alive. God works alone in our regeneration, making us spiritually alive. And we work with him in our sanctification. You've got to protect two truths. God's gift of sanctification and your cooperation in that pursuit. Uh, we pursue the gift, as John Webster put it. Uh, we act the miracle, as Piper says. Uh, God sanctifies us and we work with him. 2 Corinthians 6, working together with him, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. And this gracious work that God does has implications that are very dramatic. Paul always starts with indicatives, statements of truth, and then moves on to imperatives, commands to act upon the truth. And so the grace of God is what works in the life of a believer to make you want to be a good member of your household, to want to fulfill your responsibilities, to, to be a good friend and citizen and worker and student and, and neighbor, because Christ changes you and transforms your life. Uh, the unmerited favor of God finds very practical expression as it changes you into who God is making you to be. He's acted towards you in grace, and, and, and grace shatters your independence. Uh, grace heals your deepest wounds. Grace makes, uh, makes the deepest longings of your heart um, met in Christ. God's grace in your life is going to work itself out. It's going to be seen in generosity. It's going to be seen in kindness. It's going to be seen in love. It's going to be seen in thanksgiving and gratefulness. It is going to impact your Christian life. The grace of God operating towards you. Now, it is not, grace is not a license to go rogue. It's an empowerment to love God and do as God wills. Then you love God and do as you please. Because you want to please God. That's it. In the past, you were dead in sin. In the present, God made you alive, salvation. In the future, God saves you for his purposes, sanctification, all the way through from here till Christ comes again or takes you home, whichever comes first, and then ultimately glorification. And let me just say, as I bring the plane down for a landing, I just want to make some quick closing thoughts about the impact and the, and the implications. Number one, grace surprises you. 
Grace ought to surprise us. 1 John 2.12 says sins are forgiven for his name's sake. But what if your sins have not been forgiven? If you're here listening to this and you're like, I don't have my sins forgiven. I don't know Christ. Know this. The gospel is based not on what you do, but on what Jesus Christ has done. The good news is that Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in your place, rose from the dead in order to give new life to dead sinners, delivering from sin and giving eternal life. And, and grace surprises unknowing hearts. It's like this. This is how it happened in my life too. One moment you don't get it. One moment you don't want Jesus. And then the next you do. Because God wakes you up to eternal realities. Wakes you up to the gospel truth. Opens your heart. Well, the way we put it is he opens um, our hearts to the gospel. And so Acts 16.31 is for you then. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In view of your sinful condition apart from Christ, hope in Jesus because he's your only hope. You are responsible for your own sin and you must respond in repentance and faith. And it will be, Ephesians 1.14 says, to the praise of his glory. You get salvation, he gets maximum glory, which is paramount because grace is the hinge on which it all turns. It opens the door for those who will believe. Secondly, grace emboldens your living. Makes you bold in living praying and preaching and other things, um, you can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy. God's holiness is terrifying, but, but Christ, the sacrifice, continues to intercede for us on the basis of his sacrifice, and so we can approach him with confidence. We can actually, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, pray that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And the last thing I'll mention to you is that grace leads to worship. It leads you to worship God, to forever praise the wonders of his grace. Uh, the Holy Spirit leaves you awestruck at the glory of God, and the gospel is gonna thrill you for eternity, forever. Your sin kept you from glorifying God, but, glorify, but God glorifies himself through your salvation. The, the sheer magnificence, magnificence is awe-inspiring. All heaven glorifies him for what he has done in saving sinners. Uh, here we are breaking out consistently in rashes of pride, but grace crushes our pride, um, puts the exclusive claim on the glory for our salvation on God. He gets the glory. Salvation is by God's unmerited grace alone. We thank you, Lord, that all that you save, you will never cast out. As you said, all the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You will never lose anyone you save. Thank you, Lord, that it's because of your unmerited grace. Lord, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. We wonder how you could love us, sinners condemned unclean. But wow, how marvelous, how wonderful is your love for us. We praise you, Lord. Jesus' name, amen.